Blog Talk Radio. Central Standard Time, and this is Kim with Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you, and I'll say that one more time. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you, and, you know, we are excited today. We're going to have a conversation with Dr. Richard Carrier. This has been a long time coming, and so we're just honored to have him with us today. Wanted to give you all a couple of announcements, those of you on the East Coast. Um, Dr. Sakivu Hutchinson will be in Philadelphia this Thursday, so two days from now at 7 o'clock Eastern time with the Free Thought Society. Um, they're hosting her in conjunction with the Black Atheists of Philadelphia. This will be taking place again this Thursday at 7 o'clock evening, and it's going to be at the Ludington Library in Bryn Mawr, and her talk will be on feminism, free thought, and the 99%, and it's free to the public. So I just want to make sure that you guys knew that. So you can get in touch with the Free Thought Society, Margaret Downing, or Black Atheists of Philadelphia, Jen Taylor, and they should be able to give you some more information on that. I posted it yesterday evening and tweeted it out. And so that information is on the Black Free Thinkers profile as well as the public page. You can find that information. And you can RSVP on Facebook if you so desire to do so. Um, additionally, wanted to give the announcement yet again, a reminder, Reminders, save up your coins for our conference that's coming forth October 11th and 12th in Los Angeles, California at CFI LA. In particular, we are being sponsored by CFI, American, um, African Americans for Humanism, SSA, and LA Progressive. So we would like to see you there. Registration is only $40, $25 if you're a student. We try to keep it economical for everybody. So we're looking forward to seeing you there, and we're going to have, you know, a bunch of different speakers, panelists there. Um, Dr. Anthony Penn will be there. Dr. Sakivu Hutchison, um, Donald Wright will be there. We'll have A.J. Johnson, Raina Rhodes, Meredith Moise um, from Minister Meredith Moise. You know, so again, you know, we are intersectional, and you know, uh, we'll be talking about moving social justice forward. That is the name of the conference: moving social justice forward. And we are looking forward to seeing everybody there. So you know, bring your books. 
so you can get them autographed. We'll be taking pictures, and, you know, we'll be doing some giveaways as well. So we're looking forward to seeing you there. You know, we're really excited. This is our first conference, and we plan to do it again next year in Houston. So, you know, we're coming to a town near you. We're going to move it to different regions every year. So, you know, we need your support. You can go out on our YouTube channel, subscribe, and watch some of the videos. We'll have another video, another live webcast coming up this Sunday with Black Skeptics Chicago. We did one last weekend with Chocolate City Skeptics two weeks before that, Black Atheists of Philadelphia. And so this week, this Sunday, it will be Black Skeptics Chicago, so we're excited to bring that to you. So I just wanted to give you all a few announcements to let you know what was coming up and how important you are to us. And so I just want to introduce our our guest today. Um, Dr. Richard Carrier is a world-renowned author and speaker as a professional historian, published philosopher, and prominent defender of the American Free Thought Movement. Dr. Carrier has appeared across the U.S., Canada, and the, and the U.K., and on American television and London radio, defending sound historical methods and the ethical worldview of secular naturalism. His books and articles have received international attention with a Ph.D. from Columbia University in ancient history. He specializes in the intellectual history of Greece and Rome, particularly ancient philosophy, religion, and science, with an emphasis on the origins of Christianity and the use and progress of science under the Roman Empire. He is also a published expert in the modern philosophy of naturalism as a worldview. He is the author of On the Historicity of Jesus, While We Might Have Reason for Doubt, Proving History, Bayes' Theorem, and the Quest for the Historical Jesus, Sense and Goodness Without God, Not the Impossible Faith, Why I'm Not a Christian, and Hitler, Homer, Bible Christ. Now, that's interesting. And an amazing contributor to the empty tomb, the Christian delusion, and the end of Christianity. And for his copious work in history and philosophy, online and in print, he is currently working on his next books, which science education in the early Roman Empire and the scientists in the early Roman Empire. To learn more about Dr. Carrier and his work, if you can go on our profile page there, I had links there and I had also had links to where you can purchase his books. And so, you know, we're really excited about having him on the show today. So, Dr. Carrier, welcome to Black Free Thinkers. We've been waiting for you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad to be on, yeah. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So, you know, you sent me, you know, a copy of your book, and I will say, you know, it's, it's exciting because it answers a lot of questions, and, you know, it even brought up some questions that I didn't have that I probably should have had <laughs> about, <laughs> about all of this. And so, you know, again, you know, we're here to challenge people to think. We're out here challenging them to do the research and, you know, go out on their own and not necessarily take our words because I feel that even, you know, when you become a non-believer, agnostic, atheist, humanist, free thinker, what have you, that, you know, you're supposed to use critical thinking skills in every area of your life, even with 
information that is brought to us from other atheists and free thinkers. And so, you know, I just want people to do the research because that is how I was able to grow as a free thinker and a humanist is I would be, you know, researching one particular subject and reading about it and it would pique my interest in something else. And so the research is ongoing. I try to learn something every day. And, you know, this this here, your book, it answers a lot of questions. And I know the biggest question that everybody wants to know, and so we'll just go ahead and get this out of the way real quick and fast, <laughs> even though there's no quick and fast answer. But did Jesus ever exist? Uh, my conclusion is more probably than not, he did not exist. Um, and I don't, I don't reach this conclusion with certainty. I don't say it's absolutely certain. But I think the probability trends that way. The evidence trends that way. Uh, so, yeah, so, yeah, I, I think there was no historical Jesus originally. I think that was a story that evolved over time to sell a particular message of the faith. Excellent, excellent, excellent. And so, um, again, I wanted to talk about, you know, some of the writings, some of the historical writings that a lot of Christians, you know, which are historical that, that attempt to prove that Jesus existed. In particular, you know, in your book, you're talking about Flavius, you're talking about Tacitus, and a number of other ones. Can you weigh in on that and, and explain to us, you know, if these were actual forgeries or, or what have you, or has the story just changed throughout the, you know, the years? Yeah, um, the Tacitus passage, I'll start with that because that's the simpler one. Um, I mean, it's always been problematic because it doesn't say anything that wouldn't have just come from the Gospels. And one of the main things that's wrong with that is that Christians will cite Tacitus as corroborating the Gospels, but if he's just getting his information from the Gospels or from Christians who got it from the Gospels, that's not corroboration. So that actually doesn't help you. It's not really, it doesn't work as evidence for anything. All it would prove is that the, the Christians were telling those stories in the early 2nd century A.D., which no one doubts. So, so that's kind of useless as evidence, even if it's authentically what he wrote. And for the longest time, I was per- fairly convinced it was authentically what he wrote. And I, I was, even, even when I was uh, concluding that Jesus didn't exist, I thought the Tacitus passage was authentic uh, because, I, you know, it looks Tacitian it's, it's, you know, and so forth. It fits into the context. But then I read a French scholar who wrote uh, an article in a peer-reviewed academic journal in the field uh, in French, which is why a lot of people don't have access to this kind of information, where he details the argument for why it's probably a forgery. Not the whole passage, just the line about Jesus. And that, in fact, originally Tacitus was talking about a Jewish rebel group called the Crestians, who had, were in, inspired by this early Jewish leader named Crestus, who, who rioted in, uh, in Rome under Claudius. And then under Nero, these Crestians, these followers of him, uh, were scapegoated for the, for the burning of Rome. And he, he argues uh, that this, this French scholar argues that that was the original passage and that the Christians just snuck in a line about Jesus in there. Uh, and and th- there is some evidence for this. The, the actual manuscript of Tacitus originally said Christians, and then a later medieval scribe literally erased it and wrote an I, erased the E and wrote an I to make Christian into Christian. Uh, and we can actually tell this. We can see this on the manuscript. The evidence is actually physically there. Uh, so there's other, there's other better evidence for this being an interpolation. So I was actually quite surprised. And so I took that article and compiled a lot of other arguments, and I published in another peer-reviewed academic journal in English, in Vigiliae Christianiae, uh, Christianae uh, which, uh, where I lay out the whole case that, this, that, that Christians actually inserted that line about Jesus. And in fact, Tacitus never referred to Jesus originally. 
Uh, and that's actually, a, it was a startling hypothesis, a startling conclusion for me even. I was quite surprised, but the evidence is pretty convincing on that. Uh, and if you, you, you uh, laughed at the title Hitler, Homer, Bible Christ, which is a book that I came out as an anthology of my writings, but, but my article in the Gilei Christianae uh, on this, on the Tacitus thing, is reproduced in that book. In fact, all of my peer-reviewed papers are up to, the, up to this date are reproduced in, uh, on, on history, anyway, are reproduced in that book. Um, so people who want to get access to it in English uh, without having to go hunt down the journal article can go, can go to that book and get them. But that's, that's one thing where even if it was authentic, it wouldn't mean anything because, like I said, Tacitus could just be quoting what Christians told him, which isn't really useful. The, the big passage, the one that gets cited most often, is the one by Flavius Josephus. Uh, and this is the one where, where uh, you, you hear people say, well, Josephus attests the existence of Jesus, and Josephus was a Jewish scholar who actually was born in, in Palestine and, and grew up there and so on, so he, he would know of anything. Um, and it, it, this is widely cited as evidence. It, it gets repeated a lot. I was just the other day talking to uh, someone in Argentina, and he was saying that the, his pastor in Spanish was arguing exactly the Josephus argument, and, and he was like translating it for me from Spanish into English, and it's like, wow, that's like a global argument. Josephus referred to Jesus, therefore Jesus existed. Um, but in fact, this is the, the clearest case of interpolation. Uh, many scholars, in fact, most scholars have long known this. This isn't like a startling conclusion. It's kind of well known in the field that the passage that's in Josephus now, uh, the main passage, the long one, it's a whole paragraph that's sort of a fawning paragraph about Jesus and the Christians. Uh, pretty much all scholars agree that that's not what Josephus wrote. So at the very least, Christians have tampered with the passage. But I think the evidence is overwhelming that the entire passage was inserted. Uh, and, and you can tell because it talks about, uh, for example, this is one of many pieces of evidence, but it talks about, Josephus is talking about all the disasters that befell the Jews that led to the war, that, that the Jews rebelled against Rome and led to the Jewish war, and he's trying to explain this war. And so he talks about how Pontius Pilate did some horrible atrocity uh, that ended up killing a bunch of Jews. And then, uh, then he talks, there's this fawning passage about Jesus and the Christians, and then immediately after that, it says, and then another disaster befell the Jews. And he goes on to talk about this other uh, sca political scandal, and even a religious political scandal, incidentally, uh, where uh, this was increasing or adding to the increased tensions between the Jews and the Romans. But the passage about Christianity doesn't fit that context at all. It doesn't talk about a disaster. It doesn't talk about how the events of Christianity increased tensions between the Jews and the Romans. In fact, it shows them cooperating in, in getting rid of this sect and so on. So it doesn't make a lot of sense in context. It looks like someone just plopped it in there. And there are many other pieces of evidence of that. And I talk about it, as you know, in the book on the historicity of Jesus. Uh, I have a whole section where I lay out each piece of evidence that, that suggests that this was not originally there. Uh, but even the other passage, there's another passage in Josephus where he mentions James, the brother of Jesus, the one called Christ, uh, who was executed. Um, and I've already, before this, I had already published in peer-reviewed academic literature um, on this, where I demonstrated that it was, that was actually an accidental interpolation, where a Christian slipped the word, the one called Christ. He slipped it into the text mm -hmm. by accident, honestly believing that he was fixing the text. Um, and, and I explain in, 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 in On the Historicity of Jesus, but also in the article uh, that I published before that, why, why that is, how that happened, and, and why we can be sure that's what happened. So it seems that Josephus never mentioned Jesus and never knew anything about Jesus, when you actually look at the evidence objectively. 
Excellent, excellent, and I'm glad that, you know, we, you're, you've done the research, the information is there, guys. You want to go out and buy this book because it lays it all out perfectly for us. And, you know, it's just it's amazing because, you know, some of this is available online, you know, and people go and look it up that way, but you expound on it. So, you know, that's why we're encouraging people to go and buy this book. But, you know, it's interesting how all of this has come about. And in your book, you're talking about, you know, a number of different things that happened along um, along the lines as to, you know, how Christianity developed, you know, where it originated and how it developed. Can you give us some insights on that? Yeah, I mean, I, there's a lot. A lot about that that I think that doesn't get communicated from the pulpit, for example. Christian communities aren't taught these things. Uh, but even in the scholarly community, a lot of these things are overlooked. And I, I, you know, I number and document all of these different aspects of the political and social and cultural context in which Christianity arose, which really affects how we understand what Christians thought they were doing for, to begin with, right? Like, well, why did this cult originate? I mean, usually the story you hear is that, well, Jesus, Jesus was just this charismatic guy, and so they started a cult of personality, and then people started worshiping him, worshiping him as the son of God and so on. But that doesn't actually explain anything. It doesn't explain why his, the message surrounding Jesus was so popular, what it, what it politically made, or what was the political meaning of it at the time. Uh, so exactly. I, I talk about many aspects of this in the book, but one of them, for example, is the growing tensions between the Jews and the Romans were very much centered around the Jewish temple cult. Because uh, you have to understand that at this time in history, Judaism was very much tied to the temple as a physical institution. Their whole idea of salvation was tied to control of the priesthood in the temple. Because every exactly. year you would have the Yom Kippur that would, uh, would cleanse all Jews of their sins. Uh, and then, of course, after, after that happened, you sin again, and then you, you start accumulating sins that are going to be problematic. So you have to do little individual sacrifices to cleanse those sins uh, throughout the year. And that, you know, Leviticus, for example, explains in detail all of these little sacrifices you have to do to sort of keep yourself clean of sin so that when you die, you can, you can immediately be blessed and, and be reserved for resurrection into eternal life. So that was, that was the original idea. And then, of course, the Yom Kippur would, was sort of the catch-all. So like, if you missed any sins, this would cover you. But it had to be repeated every year. And there are many other aspects where uh, the whole idea of Jewish nationality and Jewish religion was centered around possession of and control of the temple. But the problem with that is that the Romans conquered the Jews and were undefeatable. And so you had this situation where really the Romans were controlling the temple. The Romans were deciding who the priests would be of the temple. Uh, and Roman law was, was governing uh, the province rather than the Jews being independent. And, and they were taught, like their scriptures say, that they were going to be the master race, that they were going to conquer the world and everybody would bow down to them. But the reality was the reverse, that they were the conquered and put upon people. And so this contradiction created this this sort of cognitive dissonance. And so a lot of these apocalyptic cults that arose, and the zealots as well, arose in a sense to sort of combat and sort of realize what they thought should be the reality, which is that God would come and, and save them and conquer the Romans and make them masters of the universe again. And so you had this constant tension that led to constant violence and death. Uh, you, had, you had riots, you had uh, the Roman, Roman legions would be killing large groups of, of religious gatherings and so on. It was a clearly an inherent powder keg situation. And so you had really two options. You could either keep doing that and keep trying to fight physically the Romans or create these tensions and create this violence and, and this complicated, violent, and miserable situation, 
or you could find some sort of peaceful solution, some way that you can disregard the importance of all these, these things. And that was one thing the Christians came up with, was the idea of getting rid of the temple. And this is really fundamental to the Christian gospel. And I think this is one thing that's not understood by Christians today because the temple cult doesn't exist as a thing anymore. But at the time, what the Christians originally wanted to do was replace the temple so that they no longer had to depend on physical possession of the temple. They no longer had to depend on the personnel of the temple who were chosen by the Romans and therefore considered in collusion with them. And there are many other aspects of elitism and classism that were associated with the temple cult as well. So you could just get rid of all of that if you could find a way to have your sins cleansed without depending on the temple. And Jesus is the character, the figure who serves that role, that his sacrifice allows you to basically have a permanent Yom Kippur done for you. That It doesn't have to be done again. You don't need a priesthood anymore. You don't need the temple cult. And so you can actually live peacefully with the Romans. That was the original idea of this. Uh, that it wouldn't, it would be a nonviolent uh, method. That it would be not attempting to create violent tensions and political tensions with the Romans. That you could just spread this idea that you could have salvation in Jesus, and you don't need the temple cult, you don't need any of this political apparatus anymore. So you could live comfortably and peacefully under the Roman rule. And that was the original idea. That was what they were originally trying to do. Um, of course, it, it went south after that. But that that was the original <laughs> idea. And and when you when you understand what they're trying to do, it makes a lot of sense. Exactly, exactly, and I'm glad that you explained that, and because, you know, in, in the book, you talk a little bit about the political context of all of this, and so, you know, you hear these different stories, you know, around and that people are, you know, um, advancing throughout um, the community, and so there's a lot of talk about the Council of Nicaea and Constantine. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Yeah, that's actually that's a good point that reminds me, because you mentioned you, people could find a lot of this stuff online, and I have to warn people that there's a lot of bad scholarship on this as well. Uh, and this is something that I, I have to fight on both sides, that when I uh, bring this theory to the academic community, they've usually heard the terrible, badly researched versions of this argument, and they think that I'm repeating the same thing. So I have to actually explain to them, like, no, 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 I, I took the trouble to make sure what was correct and what was not, and, you know, came up with what I thought was the most rigorous defense of this thesis. Uh, so, so don't equate me with the people who've done this badly. But at the same time, okay. you have a lot of people who are looking at this stuff and find it argued poorly. And to give you an example, um, in the movie Religious, uh, Bill Maher's movie, uh, there's, a, there's a scene in there where he, he brings up Jesus' mythicism, and uh, he talks about the parallels between Jesus and the god Horus. The problem is, is that, that, that those parallels don't exist. It, it, he's confusing the different cycles, the different myths between Horus and Osiris, and some of those details actually don't exist at all for either God and so on. So it's actually muddled and inaccurate. So that, that's terrible. That's, that's bad from a historian's and a teacher's perspective because he's spreading false information, and now I have to go out and correct people all the time. And that, that adds work uh, to try and t- get this view exactly. taken seriously. There, there are valid parallels between Jesus and certain other deities at the time, uh, but they aren't all the same parallels that are claimed on the Internet. Uh, they aren't the same parallels with different gods. I mean, one of the examples is that Mithras sometimes is claimed. Mithras uh, is sometimes mm-hmm. claimed to be a parallel to Jesus. But in fact, there's no evidence that Mithras was a dying and rising god. Although there's a similarity that he was a god who underwent a passion. And literally, they use the word passion. He underwent suffering through which he gained victory over death that he could share with his, his, his followers. And that was, and that was the parallel. Uh, so you can build a parallel there, but it's more nuanced than the whole dying and rising God thing. But there are dying and rising gods. So, there, so Jesus isn't the first one. There were actually a, a variety of cults that did have gods that actually died and actually 
were resurrected, and by that means acquired victory over death that they could share with their their followers. So Christianity doesn't appear out of a, out of nowhere. It actually fits a context in the fad of the time. But you have to get the facts right, and it's, it's very easy to get the facts wrong. And there's a lot of stuff on the internet that does that. And one of the examples is the uh, the Nicaea argument. Uh, you often see people say that the Council of Nicaea, which uh, took place in the early 4th century AD, uh, it, it took place because when Constantine the Great took over uh, the empire after a civil war that, that he was victorious in, uh, when he took over, he was basically nominally converted to Christianity before this and actually decided that he could use the Christian church as a kind of political machine to consolidate his power over the empire. But the problem he faced is that the church was divided at the time between two major theologies. And so he forced them, forced all the bishops of the empire to come together in a council and decide once and for all what the teachings of of Christianity would be so that he could have a unified church and therefore rule using it. But what was decided there was only nuanced aspects of theology. They didn't decide which books to, to include in the Bible. And that's what oftentimes you hear people say that the Council of Nicaea decided what would be in the New Testament, for example. And that's not the case. They didn't even actually talk at all about what books to be in the New Testament. Uh, there are a variety of later councils that tried to decide that, but, but even by then the, the decision had already been made by tradition, essentially. Um, and there's uh, uh, Trobish, who is a particular scholar who did this. Uh, I think he wrote a book called The First Edition of the Bible or The First Edition of the New Testament or something like that. Uh, but he, he shows that, that what we call the New Testament already kind of existed in the second century sort of informally. And so it just sort of organically grew into the, the most popular version of the text. There, was some, there were some books that sort of orbited in and out of it, and it didn't quite get finalized until uh, the late 4th, early 5th century. Um, but it, there wasn't one single council that sat down and decided what books to be in the New Testament. It was just something that grew over time based on which sect became most successful and which books were most popular within their hierarchy. Uh, so, so the Council of Nicaea doesn't really have a lot to do with explaining the origins of Christianity because the, the, the theology that was decided upon at the Council of Nicaea has nothing to do with the original Christian teachings. In fact, they came up with a completely bizarre theological system that makes no sense. I mean, the idea of the Trinity was essentially invented, or not invented, but essentially solidified there. But there was no Trinity concept originally. Originally, Jesus was a subordinate to God. He wasn't equal to God. He wasn't the same as God. He was a separate being, uh, it regarded kind of like an archangel. Uh, and the Holy Spirit wasn't considered coterminous with them either. So, so the, the idea of there being a Trinity, like uh, three beings that are one and the same being, that, that was a much later development in the church that had more political motivation behind it, I assume, rather than uh, any kind of actual basis in the origins of the sect. Excellent. Excellent. And so I'm glad that you cleared that up, and I'm glad that you put that out there, because that's an argument that we hear constantly in these debates with atheists versus, you know, believers. And so I just wanted, you know, you to bring forth information and the evidence, you know, that, that backs up scholarship because, you know, there are a lot of bad, you know, arguments out there, and I just wanted that to be cleared up because, you know, we have a lot of people, and I'm guilty of using it as well, and I've, you know, after I read your book, I was corrected. And so I'm still doing some more <laughs> research on that. So, you know, I appreciate that, you know, very much so. And so now I want to talk about Paul because, you know, I used to be a believer. I used to be a minister. 
Yeah, yeah, back in the day. And so, and so it was just interesting because one of the things that I used to say to people is basically what's being taught in the church is the gospel of Paul, not necessarily the gospel of Jesus. That's right. And so, yeah, yeah in, your, in your book, you talk about the evidence of Acts. You're talking about the, books, the book of Acts as historical fiction. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I mean, the main reason I had to deal with the Book of Acts is because sometimes scholars use the Book of Acts to say, well, there's evidence in it that Jesus was a historical person. So I had to look at it, uh, and, when I, and I studied all the scholarship on it and found that it's much more dubious than even I had thought originally, that in fact there's a lot of evidence that Acts is really a, a creation of propagandistic fiction. It, it's like something that Putin's Russia would invent as far as... A, it was like the history book that they would publish for Russia. It's the history they wish were true, not the history that was actually true. Uh, and that's what the Christians... Yeah, that's what the Christians ended up doing with the Book of Acts. Is it's creating, a, a, or at least one particular Christian or one particular uh, sect or one particular interest group within the Christian movement wanted their history to be this way, and, and they, they wanted it to be that way so they could sell a particular idea of a unified church. Because... Um, the reality is, and we can compare this, when we look at Acts, the story that's told in Acts versus the story that's told in Paul's actual authentic letters. Like, Paul's the actual eyewitness who's actually writing what actually happened. We find that they contradict each other, and they contradict each other in very interesting and deliberate ways. Um, Paul is describing a church that was, that was totally a Jewish sect. If you wanted to be a Christian, you had to become a Jew. You had to be, circumscri- uh, you had to be circumcised. You had to obey Torah dietary laws. You had to obey um, all kinds of different... Uh, rules and so forth. He basically had to be a Jew. Now, Paul claimed that Jesus came to him in a vision and said, well, you no longer have to do this. You, my, my salvation cleanses you of all sins, so you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow dietary laws and so on, which is a conveniently great idea because it allows Paul to expand the church to an entire new market of Gentiles who were attracted to the idea of Judaism but didn't want to you know, cut a piece of their penis off to do it. Right? So, so by making it easier... To become to join this sect, uh, it made it more popular. And so Paul was actually actually created a good innovation that brought a lot of people into the church, and with them money. Right. So the more people you get into the church, the more money that's getting into the church. Uh, and so the original uh, sectarians, the original leaders of the, the sect, which is Kephas or Cephas, uh, also known as Peter, and James and John were the the, the pillars, so called, the original three who started the sect supposedly. Um, when they saw this happening, they kind of had to begrudgingly find a way to come to a detente with Paul rather than just excommunicate him and say he's false because he's being so successful and he's drawing more people to his version of it. It's, it's an easier, more successful, and therefore better money-making version of Christianity. So they wanted to kind of integrate their sect with his, obviously. And so they came to a kind of detente, but it was a very uneasy detente. Uh, where they, they said the Jews had to still stay Jews who were in the church, and, the, and Gentiles who were recruited didn't have to become Jews and so on, but they tried to create this, this sort of diplomatic solution that would allow the two churches to be one church. Um, and that, that, that was always uneasy. It didn't always work out too well. And you see this, the Gospel of Mark is written in defense of the Pauline version of Christianity, and then the Gospel of Matthew, someone who was defending the Jewish version, where you had to be Jewish, authentically Jewish to be Christian, they wrote Matthew. So Matthew is actually a rebuttal to Mark. It's, it's, it's weird that later on it got used as sort of they were the same story told by different people. But well, no, Matthew was specifically written. They, they took Mark and rewrote it to kind, kind of push this agenda of the Jews-only version of Christianity. Uh, and that if you were to expand to Gentiles, those Gentiles had to become Jews. 
Uh, and so this, this debate kept going on for a while, and the, the church was very divided over this and very split over this. So when Luke came along, or whoever, you know, the author, we call Luke, whoever they really were, we don't really know their real name, uh, when they came along and wrote their version of the story, when they wrote history, they wrote it as the, the Jewish version of the, of the sect and the, the Gentile version of the sect always got along. It was always kosher, it was always cool, and, and it was always harmonious, and can't we just all follow this model? But the Gentile church is right, wink, wink, right? So it was, it was very much a, a writing in favor of making the Gentile version of the church dominant and supreme, but also being able to integrate the Jewish, uh, the still Jewish sects, uh, or versions of the sect, uh, into the, the same church. So, uh, so he rewrote history to, to sell this message, to make it seem like this is the way it had always been, and, and isn't that great? Can't we all just get along and look at all these miracles that confirmed that this version of, uh, of Christianity and so on? So that's what, what's going on in Acts. And when you understand what the author is trying to do and you see all of the clear examples where he's rewriting history to be the opposite of what it really was, uh, you start to, to get the picture that this is not a historically reliable text. And, and then you, you can start analyzing it in terms of why are certain passages in there? Uh, what you, you now know that the author had a reason for them to be there. He's trying to prove a point or make a particular point. So now you, you're looking at the text in a different way. You're not looking at it as, uh, oh, he just wrote down what he was told. This is just what the, the passed on history was. No, no, no. He's specifically constructing these stories to sell a specific ideology. And so when you understand that and you start looking at it, you see the text differently. Uh, and, and it looks quite brilliant as a, as a production of authorship, right? Like the, the, the cleverness with which he creates this fictional history is brilliant, uh, but it is fictional history. So you can't get the truth out of it. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I just find it interesting because I believe, you know, Paul said, be all things to all people. And, you know, his <laughs> mission was to incorporate the pagans and other people into their p particular ideology there. So I always yeah. thought that was, you know, rather um, interesting because I tell people all the time, Paul was like the Benny Hinn of his time. So, you know, he was trying to <laughs> trying to attract people and get the money coming back into the church. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's just rather interesting because um, there's a part here in your book when you were talking about Paul and, you know, the peculiar indifference of Paul and his Christians. And so I just wanted you to talk yeah. about that a little bit. Yeah, that's, that's where I get to the epistles. Um, so I think ultimately the debate as to whether Jesus existed or not as a historical person always ends up debating the nuances of what's written in the authentic epistles of Paul. Of course, not a lot of people know that only seven letters of Paul are believed to be authentic. The, others, the other letters attributed to him in the New Testament are pretty much universally agreed to be forgeries, that someone wrote those letters in his name. When you look at the originals, there's... there's really not a lot of evidence of a historical Jesus in there. There's a few sort of ambiguous passages that scholars who want to defend the historicity of Jesus focus on, uh, and that's where the debate ultimately lies. Because I think the Gospels, you can prove, as I show in the book, they're, they're myths. They're, they're written symbolically, allegorically. They're not even meant or even originally intended to be taken as literal historical truth. And even when they were, like when you get to the Gospel of John, it is intended to be taken as historical truth, but he's making it all up. Uh, you can tell by that point that, that they're just making stories up. Uh, so you can't really get historicity out of the Gospels, and we just talked about Acts. 
the, the evidence outside the New Testament is not reliable. We talked about that a little bit. So we don't really have uh-huh. anything. All we have are the epistles. And so it comes down to debating what, what did Paul mean when he said certain things in the epistles. Uh, and and that's, that's where we get to this idea of the fact that no one seems interested in the historical Jesus in, in the letters. There's, for example, when every time he, multiple times, he gives the gospel or he explains the role Jesus plays in terms of salvation history, and he gives the whole sort of core gospel creed, like what the creed is supposed to believe in that is what happens and so on. Uh, all, every time he does that, there's no ministry of Jesus. There, there's no reference to Jesus having a ministry. There's no reference to Jesus being a miracle worker. There's no reference to Jesus being an exorcist. Uh, he, Paul never references any of these things. And when there are arguments about what Jesus taught, they're always brought down to, well, what, what did Jesus reveal to me? And it's always talking about visions in terms of what, what words of the Lord did he get in, in his visions of Jesus. There's never any debate over what the actual historical Jesus said, right? There's no one says, well, I know this guy who knew Jesus, and he says he said this. What do you say to that, Paul? Uh, Paul never has to answer that argument, uh, and it's really peculiarly weird that Paul never has to answer that argument. It, it does, never even occurs to Paul that that's even an argument he has to answer. Uh, and so there's lots of things like that where, where you would be sure if you're writing about 20,000 words worth of letters, uh, on, and they're all on Jesus. It's all about Jesus and what Jesus taught and what we're supposed to believe about Jesus, uh, that no one ever asked Paul about, like, oh, well, what, what, do, what did the people who knew Jesus say – uh, how did he, you know, how did he endure the crucifixion, or, or are there any disputes about what he said at a certain time, or, or what, what amazing miracles did he do, and what kind of evidence do we have that he did these things, and so on? There were no disputes about this, and you wouldn't expect necessarily all of these things to be mentioned in the letters. Uh, certainly, you know, it's, it's, you, you have to have the occasion for it to come up, but for none of them to be mentioned in the letters is really bizarre, and it's really strange. It's also strange that all of these letters, the, the earliest documents we have, they all date to within the 50s A.D. Uh, right. Now, certainly, and Paul had been preaching for 20 years before that, or almost 20 years before that. Where are all the other letters, right? It's not like Paul preached and traveled the globe for 20 years and never wrote a letter. That, that's completely right. unbelievable. Uh, so, so why do we only have the letters he wrote uh, in the 50s? And so there's a lot of these curious questions about the way the evidence has been mediated to us uh, that, that create suspicions. Uh, and, and the fact that the letters that were brought to us don't contain any clear references to the historical Jesus. There are some passages that scholars say hint at a historical Jesus, and, and those are the passages that come up for debate, and I talk about them in the book. Uh, but they're very few, and they are ambiguous, uh, and, and it is strange, the general silence of the letters overall. Exactly. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And, you know, I've been talking about that over the years, and especially when I say, you know, the churches are really, you know, teaching the gospel of Paul. You know, they tend to get, you know, upset and angry with me, but then when they sit back and think about it, you know, it it is. You know, I had Christians get angry with me when I say everything that has been attributed to Paul in the Bible, it just needs to be discarded. I'm like, you all should throw all of that out because... You know, um, you know, there's no historical evidence behind this. And, you know, from my understanding, from, you know, what I've read, and maybe you can um, correct this if I'm incorrect, but wasn't Paul Gnostic? Wasn't he a Gnostic? Yeah, that's, that's a tricky word. I don't use it in the book. Um, I don't like the word because it's misassociated with, with certain things. Um, it's hard to pin down what the word Gnostic means. In, in the most basic sense, in a sort of rudimentary sense, 
uh, the Gnostic was someone who believed that if you achieved certain spiritual knowledge, which was called Gnosis at the time, uh, that that was the key to salvation. And in that sense, Paul is a Gnostic because he does talk about Gnosis as, as a key part of your path to salvation. You had to achieve the understanding of the mysteries of Christianity. Uh, and these were like secret teachings that would be taught uh, to members of a sect. So, so he's sort of a Gnostic in that sense. And there are certain aspects of his teachings that are similar to later Gnostic sects. But the problem with the word is that when people talk about the Gnostics, what they often, use, and this is both scholars and lay people, what they usually actually mean are a variety of second century sects of Christianity. So this, these are sects that are 100 years more evolved than Paul. They've got, undergone like 100 years of transformations, and they're all different from each other. So, so it's really hard to find actual commonalities among them. Uh, and they are a late version of Christianity. So you, what you want to do is you don't want to say that Paul was teaching the same things as the Gnostic sects of the late second century, because he wasn't. They were, or at least we can't we don't have no way of knowing that he was. He may have been, some of them. We, we really don't know. Um, but the thing is, because it's such a late version of the sect. So I think calling Paul a Gnostic only creates confusion. I, I would avoid using the term for that reason. Um, there is a technical sense in which it would be uh, correctly applied. But, uh, but that's the main problem. And, and the second problem with that is that because what people understand as the Gnostics are all these late second century versions of Christianity, uh, we only know about them almost exclusively. There are some, a few, very few exceptions, but almost exclusively all we know about them is through the lens of their enemies. That means the, the Christians who were against them. So we have, for example, all these, these long treatises, these multi-volume works written against the Gnostics, essentially, you know, against the heretics, as they would call them. Um, but okay. they're all the versions of their enemies. And, so, and we know the Christians were very fond of straw man argumentation. We know they were often very poor at getting correct what the views of their enemies were. Oftentimes they didn't care, getting, care about getting correct what the views of their enemies were because they were trying to win a rhetorical war. So the truth wasn't really that important. To them it was, can we get people to not go to these churches, uh, whatever, you know, no, no holds barred. If we have to tell lies to do it, that's fine. Uh, so when we're trying to understand what these Gnostic sects believed, by reading the, the works of these rhetorical uh, polemical treatises against them, we have to understand that we're looking at it through a very distorting lens. So we don't necessarily have access to what the actual teachings of these Gnostic sects were. We can sort of maybe navigate the evidence to try and guess at it, to try and understand what the biases were and control for them and so on, but it's a very iffy process. So we don't have a lot of access really to what the Gnostics actually believe. Certainly the earliest Gnostic sects we have virtually no access to. Um, so that, that also complicates the idea of calling Paul a Gnostic. So I, I tend to avoid that label for that reason. Okay, excellent. Excellent, excellent. So I'm glad we got that cleared up. And it gives me more to go out into research because, mm-hmm. you know, all phenomena, you know, in and of itself is quite interesting. And, you know, it, it's interesting that a lot of Christians, you know, follow Paul. And and you're correct, many of, you know, many people you know, it's like, I won't say that they've forgotten about Jesus because they talk about Jesus quite a bit, but, you know, <laughs> more, most of the sermons that I hear are centered around Paul and what he had to say. Yeah. And when you 
this out. It makes them think because now they have to sit back and think about it. And I've had a couple tell me that I was correct, that, you know, they teach more about Paul than they do about the words of Jesus. (laughs) And in your book, you talk about the Eucharist. And so explain what the Eucharist is to everyone and, and the importance of that within the context of this history. Yeah, uh, in in Paul, Paul says he learned about the Eucharist, which was the the Lord's Supper, basically this this sort of special ritual supper that unified that basically brought Christians together and unified them with the body of Christ, and therefore allowed them to achieve the immortality of Christ. I mean, basically the idea of unifying yourself with Christ. The whole idea of it was that you would acquire His attributes and benefits, so that His power would work through you, so you could be you could maybe work miracles if He chose for you to do that. But also you would, you would share in his immortality. You would share in his salvation. And so uh, and a common way to do this, to, to share uh, properties with the God that you worshipped throughout the ancient world, was to symbolically, symbolically consume the God, right? To consume some sort of food or drink that sort of represented bringing the God into yourself. And so that, that actually made sense in context. Um, and, but the thing is, is that Paul says that he learned about this directly from Jesus. And we know that Paul never met Jesus, right? So when he says the Lord told him this, he means in a vision, in a revelation, right? He doesn't, this is an oral tradition he's passing on. This is something that he had a vision of this and is now communicating this idea of the Lord's Supper to his, to his people. And so that, that's problematic. That's a weird thing to see in the evidence, uh, unless, of course, it wasn't really a historical event and was only known through revelation. Now, that's compatible with historicity. It's possible there was a historical Jesus who never had a Last Supper and that this idea of a Last Supper evolved later. And in fact, many, many scholars already argue this. This is actually kind of a mainstream argument that's been made. Uh, it, it's not, a, a not like part of the mythicist argument necessarily. There are a lot of scholars who have pointed this out, that, that the, the story of the Last Supper is what's called an etiological myth. It means it's a, it's a, a story made up to explain the causes, the origins of this ritual that they're engaging in. Um, and so the, the event never actually happened. But even scholars who argue that still generally think there was a historical Jesus. They just don't think he did this in particular. But either way you look at it, it's, it's coming from visions or claimed visions. It's not a historical event that's going on. And later, of course, historical stories start being created about it. So you, that's when you get in the Gospels. You have the, it's now called the Last Supper which only makes sense for a historical person to have a last supper. Paul never calls it the last supper because it's not a, it wasn't, wasn't even the first or last supper of Jesus. It was just, it was this sort of this ritual that Jesus taught uh, that became the Lord's supper. That was a ritual that Christians practiced. Uh, and so when you look at it in context, it looks fishy on the idea of a historical Jesus, but it makes perfect sense on the idea of this revelatory Jesus, this sort of super being in outer space that's communicating with them in this fashion. And so they come up with this idea and this all ties into what I was talking about earlier, where they want to replace the Jewish temple cult. Because the Passover is one of the most fundamental, there, there are two, two of the most fundamental rituals in, in the Jewish calendar are the Yom Kippur, which is the annual cleansing of sins, and the Passover, which was represented a lot of things, but one of the key things was rescue from death. One of the main symbolic points of it was that God will rescue from death, and so it was very much associated with that concept. And at the time, Passover was very much tied in with uh, sacrifices and rituals involving the temple. So when the Christians wanted to replace the temple, they needed not just a a replacement for the Yom Kippur sacrifice, which they got in this idea of a crucified celestial being whose sacrifice replaces the Yom Kippur, so you never have to perform a Yom Kippur again. 
but they also needed a replacement for Passover. And when you look at all of the evidence, even as early as Paul and even in later texts in Christian writing, the Eucharist is a replacement for the Passover. It's their version of a ritual that does all the things that the Passover was supposed to do for the Jews. Uh, and even the idea of that it involves remembrance, remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus, that that's, ties right into the Passover of the Jews, which is remembrance of how God delivered us from Egypt, right? So it's, it's, it's very much a sort of revamped, newfangled, modern version of Passover that allows you to have all the effects, the ritual effects of Passover, without having to have a dependency on the Jewish temple. And so that's the origin of the Eucharist ritual. It served a particular political social purpose, and, and that's how it evolved. All right, excellent, excellent, excellent. And so I'm glad that, you know, um, you expounded on that and you talked about that because that is one of the things that we practice in the Christian church, the ones that mm-hmm. I grew up with. And on the first Sunday of every month, we would have, um, you know, get together and, and, and have communion because, you know, the churches call it communion. Yeah. And, you know, eat the cracker or oyster cracker or whatever they gave us. And some churches serve real wine. Of course, those churches were popular. And, and grape juice <laughs> or whatever. And so, <laughs> so I'm glad that you explained that and, and you talked about it. But it was this one chapter here when I just read the um, the um, when I was just reading you know just information about your book women and sperm and I just found that interesting uh, because when we had Dr. Penn we had Dr. Penn on and he was talking about Jesus and how basically Jesus they they acted as though Jesus did not have a penis you know like he was a kin now just mm-hmm. totally nothing there and you know but but tell us a little bit about women and sperm here. Yeah, yeah, I, and for audience members who who haven't seen the book yet, there actually is a section. It's uh, chapter. It's in the table of contents too. It's uh, chapter eleven, section nine. The name of the section is women and sperm. Yes. <laughs> what on earth is that about? Yeah. Uh, yeah. This, this relates to what I was talking about before, which is one of the ambiguous passages, or two of the ambiguous passages in the letters of Paul. Uh, regarding uh, where they try to argue that, that Paul t- is referring to a historical Jesus. And one of them is um, that uh, in, in Romans, Paul says that, um, uh, that, uh, that Jesus came from uh, the seed of, of David, right? Um, now, seed, that's the sort of polite way to translate the Greek word, which is sperm. They're talking about semen, right? So, <laughs> so they're actually talking about actual, actual sperm coming from David, right. that, that Jesus comes from that. And you say, well, why would you say that unless there was an actual historical-born person? And in the book, I explain that there actually are sort of cosmic ways that that can happen, that, that, that it actually was scripturally required that the flesh of Jesus be molded out of Davidic flesh, that it actually be built from the sperm of David, which God can do directly, the same way that God made Adam, right? God didn't, Adam didn't come from a mother. God just took some clay and molded it into flesh and made Adam, right? Uh, And in fact, the exact same word that's used to talk about God manufacturing a body that way is the word that Paul uses when he talks about uh, uh, Jesus being from the seed of David or he talks about Jesus being, quote-unquote, born of a woman. The word is actually made. It's manufactured. Uh, so we're talking about God manufacturing the flesh of Jesus. And this, this is because we have to explain the original 
what I'm arguing is the original teaching of the, of the Christians, was that Jesus did take on a body of flesh and was killed and was buried and so on, was crucified and was buried and so on. But all this took place in, in magical places in the heavens, right? These were all, it was, and it was done by Satan and his demons who did not know who he was at the time. Uh, and, and if you think that's a wild, crazy theory, trust me, the book explains why that makes sense and it actually makes a lot of sense in context. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but the point being is that he did, it was scripturally required that he would have messianic flesh, that he would be made from the sperm of David. Uh, and, and that is the idea that God fashioned a body for Jesus out of the semen of David uh, to create this, this, this fleshly body that could then die and therefore cleanse uh, the universe of sin forever, right? It was, it was the whole part of the whole process of how that could work cosmically in terms of achieving the ability to eliminate the temple is no longer relevant. And that was the, the original Christian teaching. But, and this is the thing, is that it talks about Jesus being born of a woman in another passage, and in a separate passage being born of the seed of David. But the word born is not actually there. It's, it's the word manufactured. It's the word made. Uh, and interestingly, Later, Christians were bothered by this, and in both passages, they tried, scribes of the New Testament, tried changing the word. So we actually have versions of the New Testament where they change the word back from made into born in both places. And, but we can confirm that that happened later, that it was later manuscripts that that occurred to, which is kind of giving away the game, right? So it's kind of like, a, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's like if you, if you, uh, if, if you engage, if you're, if you're on trial for murder and it's proven that you engaged in efforts to avoid being caught, that's considered evidence of guilt, right? <laughs> so uh, the, the same thing here. Exactly. Like if the Christians were trying to doctor the record to hide the fact that the word born wasn't actually used, that's kind of evidence of guilt. It kind of shows that, that, that yeah, they really didn't mean born originally. It was, it was manufactured. Uh, but also the, the passage about women where he says he was born of a woman, I, I show in extensively that that's actually an allegorical point, that Paul's saying that we are all born of that same woman. It's, it's an allegorical woman, not a literal, physical, biological woman. Uh, and that it, through resurrection, Jesus became born of another woman, a completely different one. And we, too, will be born of that other celestial, superior woman, you know, through baptism and therefore in the resurrection. So it's all a, a sort of allegorical story. It's, he's not talking about a historical birth to a woman. And you, it's kind of easy to show that if you can push away your blinders and, and, and look at the text objectively rather than through the lens of you know, sort of all the dogma that you've inherited over time. Uh, and the same goes for the, the passage about the sperm of David. And that's why I have a whole section on discussing this. What, what, what does Paul mean by the sperm of David? And what does he mean, mean by born of a woman? What, what do those passages mean in context? And when you look at them in a context, they, they don't mean the things that uh, the historicity defenders claim. Excellent, excellent. And we're down to our last eight minutes, but I want to ask a couple of questions. And because we always hear this about, since we're talking about women and Paul, with Paul telling mm -hmm. the women to be quiet and to yeah. um, direct all of their questions to their husbands, let's talk about that. Expound on Tell us what he really meant yeah. by that. <laughs> uh, that's actually, uh, yeah, I'll blow your mind on this one. Uh, Paul never said any such thing. Um, those are interpolations. Uh, well, one is an interpolation, the other is a forgery. Uh, one of the, 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 the Timothy letters, right, is where the, the most blatant passages where, where Paul is made to say, uh, a woman shall not speak in church. And he says, it's forbidden for a woman to speak in church or to have authority over a man. So it's like very 
socially prohibiting of, of women having any position of authority over a man or having any public speaking position or speaking in church and so on, which is quite shocking when you see, you know, uh, churches where there's women pastors or women speaking up in church and so you're not even following your own book. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but that's, that's in the Timothy, the, the pastoral epistles, as they're called, but then the letters to Timothy, those are forgeries. And in fact, pretty much all scholars agree that they're forgeries. The, the stylistic evidence is clear. Um, the, the evidence is pretty overwhelming that Paul did not write those letters. Those letters were written in the second century by someone who was upset at Paul's egalitarianism, in fact, that they wanted to sort of restore the social hierarchy that they were familiar with in the regular world. And so they, they forged these letters for a, ver- for a variety of reasons, but one of which is to include this passage so they could put women back in their place. Because the original Pauline teaching Paul taught that in baptism we were all we all became equals. There, there was neither male nor female. You know that whole line is neither slave nor free. We're all equals. This whole this egalitarian concept that we can all have the same role in the church and so on um, that was too radical for for later Christians. Um, and this typically happens where you have sort of a radical break from tradition and you have this new sect arises and it's really exciting and everybody joins it and it's cool. Uh, but then as it becomes larger and more institutionalized, it becomes more conservative, and so they start reintroducing the old classism, the old gender uh, biases, and so on. They start reproducing the social hierarchy they're familiar with in the outside world, and so it becomes the very thing that it was trying to break away from originally, and that's kind of a sad story of Christianity, and it's a sad story of many religions. It's what happens. Um, so anyway, so someone forged that letter of Paul, so that's not even an authentic letter, um, uh, so we can dismiss that. Paul didn't say that. But there's another passage in 1 Corinthians uh, that kind of says the same thing, where women aren't supposed to speak in church. But it's, we can demonstrate, and in Hitler, Homer, Bible, Christ, I have my, uh, my blog on that, right, and I cite all the, the scholarship and stuff that shows this, that it's actually an interpolation. It was never originally there. Paul didn't say that. There are many reasons we can, we can conclude that, but one of them is the fact that just like a chapter earlier, Paul was talking about women speaking in church as if it was totally normal, right? Because um, he says you know, if women are going to speak in church, they should have their head veiled, right? But, uh, you know, later well, on it says women, you know, do not permit women to speak in church. I was like, wait a minute, you, just, you just said it was okay if they had their head right, veiled. Right, exactly. So we know, we know Paul's actual teaching. Paul himself actually taught the idea that, that women could speak up in church just like anyone else. It was, it was, all, it was supposed to be this, this great, wonderful, egalitarian society that they were creating within society, uh, this evil, awful society, that they could create their own society within that that, that sort of reversed all of the things that they thought were evil about the outside world, where there would be neither rich nor poor, where everybody would be the same. Um, all the things they thought were awful about the general society they were stuck in, they were trying to create a sort of sub-society that they could live in, where they could realize the ideals that they actually thought uh, were the proper ideals, which happened to be very Marxist, by the way. Uh, even the Book of Acts says that, they, it even has the Marxist credo in there, that uh, uh, from each according to his means to each according to their need. Uh, there's a passage in, in, I think it's Acts 4, uh, where it actually explicitly says that, that that was their ideal of the, of the original church. Ironically, by the time Luke wrote this, that, that ideal had, had gone by the wayside. They, they were, had restored the old hierarchy of rich over poor. But, um, but th- that's what you see in Paul, is this idea of the, trying to achieve this sort of utopian, egalitarian society within society. Um, it didn't succeed. These things never succeed. But um, that's, that was the hope. And so Paul actually had better ideas uh, than he's represented as having in the canonical New Testament now. Excellent, excellent. And I want to ask about one more thing, and then, you know, we'll, we'll be moving forward. But um, about the resurrection, not the resurrection, I'm sorry, about the rapture. 
And, nice. you know, we've, I, I've talked to people about how this only came into um, the Christian, you know, culture, if you will, in the past couple of hundred years, that this wasn't something that they were professing then, that this came from a vision of a young girl and, and other people, and they just expounded on that that particular message of, you know, Jesus coming back. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, which aspect of it? Because uh, this does go back to Paul, but it depends on which aspect of the rapture teaching you're talking about. I'm talking about um, when Jesus comes back and brings forth his arm. Well, basically when people get caught up, people are going to get caught up yeah. and basically disappear while driving and come back, go back <laughs> to heaven, go up with Jesus and, you know, all of this disaster. You yeah. know, all of those books, there's a new movie coming out about that as yeah. well. But yeah, cool. I know, I know. Um, well, certainly a lot of beliefs about that have evolved over time. Uh, but the basic idea, in fact, even the word rapture is in Paul. It's in 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, so Paul, what Paul says, it's in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says that we will be snatched up, which uh, is the word rapture is, is to be snatched up. Uh, so we'll be snatched up into the air to be with Jesus, um, the dead and the alive. By the, way. The, the dead will be resurrected, and then we will be snatched up. The dead will be snatched up, with, you know, resurrected with us, and we'll get snatched up in there. But we'll go up into the air to be with Jesus. Um, so, uh, but, but his view wasn't that he would just suddenly vanish. His view was that you would literally fly up into outer space and be with Jesus. Uh, it was more like a Heaven's Gate cult idea, although even more literal than the Heaven's Gate cult thought. Uh, their idea was the soul would get raptured up into these special bodies. Although, interestingly, Paul does talk about there being special bodies waiting for us already in heaven. In, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about God has already built our perfect bodies and they're waiting for us in heaven that we just have to go to them and go jump in them like android bodies or something. Uh, so there's it, it, kind of this weird, creepy cosmology, but it, this is the way they thought back then. Uh, so, so for Paul, yeah, he actually says that we will be raptured into the air to be with Jesus. He's very vague about what else will happen. He doesn't talk about Jesus killing everybody else or, or, or burning the earth or any of that. That, that stuff does appear in the New Testament, we have it in, in the forged letters of Peter, uh, written in the second century, where he talks about God will melt the universe with a, with a burning heat and all of that. But uh, we don't see that referenced in Paul. And in fact, it, it doesn't sound like, it's hard to say because Paul's never explicit, but it sounds like Paul never advocates a belief in hell. For Paul, if you die and are not saved, you just stay dead. You just, you just never get to live again. So there's no reference in Paul to actual eternal torment of that sense, at least no clear reference. It seems like for Paul, the only people who get resurrected are the people who get resurrected into new supernatural bodies and get to live forever in outer space with Jesus. Um, and, and so that, that was a Pauline teaching, but it, you know, it, it's got piled on and altered over time again and again uh, through, through later antiquity, then the Middle Ages, and like you said, uh, <laughs> visionaries still in the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries. Exactly, exactly. And by Paul not talking about hell, that makes sense because he's Jewish. And a lot of people don't realize that, um, you know, Judaism, they do not teach about a hell. They do not believe in hell. And it's just so much, it's so much. And we're going to have to get you back on because, yeah. you know, I definitely want to talk to you a little bit more about, you know, um, the difference between Judaism and Christianity where it overlaps and, you know, the differences yeah. in like how, 
Jewish people, they do not give a tithe because there are no Levitical priests. And, I mean, I believe that type of information is needed. And the only way the Levitical priests can be restored is if they find a perfect red heifer. They've been trying, but they haven't found the perfect one yet. So, I mean, <laughs> you, <laughs> so we'll talk about all of that. We're going to have to have you back, Dr. Carrier. You know, sure. you're a friend of the show. And we appreciate it. And, you know, again, everybody, if you go look at the profile for today's show, it gives you two locations where you can go and purchase this book. You can get it at Amazon. You can get it online directly from the manufacturer. Um, so that information is there. And I also put a link up on how you can contact Dr. Richard Carrier for speaking engagements. So, you know, we're looking forward to all of that, Dr. Yeah. Carrier. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, I really, truly appreciate it. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Excellent, and you're welcome back at any time. So with that being said, again, we're going to sign out. This is Kim with Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. You all have a good rest of the week now. Take care. Thank you, Dr. Carrier. All right.